the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. And welcome to this edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. My conversation today is with Dr. Dwayne Donald, Associate Professor in Secondary Education at the University of Alberta. Dr. Donald was born and raised in Edmonton and is a descendant of the Papache Cree. He taught both abroad and in Alberta before moving into academia. Dwayne's primary research focus is on curriculum initiatives that require teacher and student engagement with Aboriginal concerns and priorities. He looks at the emerging understandings of Plains Cree and Blackfoot philosophies that provide insight into Aboriginal-Canadian relationships and the tensions often at play when Aboriginal peoples and their concerns are discussed in classroom contexts. If you like what you're hearing, Connect with Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com, or follow us on Twitter at IntersectionEd. We really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Here's my conversation with Dr. Dwayne Donald. Hello, Dr. Donald. How are you today? I'm just fine, dude. Okay. Just fine. I want to thank you so much for speaking with me today and meeting here. Um... You know, this is an education podcast, and so one of the one one of the things that I ask most of my guests is how they came to teaching. Um, what were some of the early experiences that you had, or what made you go into the profession of teaching? Um, I, you know, just thinking back about my schooling experience and what it was like. I, I, I grew up here in the city, and did all my schooling here in Edmonton. And uh, uh, in general, I, I would say the experience was a good one. And, uh, you know, like most of us, I had good teachers, people who inspired me. Um, probably the main one was the former Alberta Teachers Association president, Larry Boy, was my high school social studies teacher. And, uh, um, yeah, just... Uh, I just felt really comfortable in his classroom and felt engaged and uh, cared for. And, um, you know, my first degree was in history. And so I think a lot of us who get a degree like that, the next question is, okay, now what am I going to (laughs) do? And so uh, I made the transition over to education, thinking about other teachers, but Larry Boy was one of them. Mm -hmm. And just, uh, you know, I did a lot of sports when I was in school, and um, I was also interested in that, being a coach and being part of that whole culture. Yeah. Um, You you grew up in an education system, and we often hear about that. Now, now I'm a bit fishing here, and I don't I don't mean to, but, you know, as an Indigenous person growing up in Edmonton, did, did you ever feel like the education system was created for people who are not like you, for white people, or did, did you feel this push to assimilate? Uh, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm fishing here, but I just wanted to know, did you have any of those experiences where you felt like you didn't belong, where it was um, more of a, 
of a person who's from a European background kind of created system? Uh, for sure. And, uh, you know, the way I understand those experiences now is that, uh, that's the way schools were set up. And, and, you know, the era that I grew up in, you know, I was born in the mid sixties and, uh, um, you know, the, the way it was in my family was that uh, anything indigenous, uh, for the most part, people were trying to shake that off so that because they saw it as, uh, as something that wasn't going to help them. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly that's the way it was in general in our family. And uh, so, um, you know, schooling was was um, set up as something that we we needed to pay attention to. I have three older brothers, and uh, we were expected to do our best there. And so certainly being socialized in that way and accepting, you know, uh, you called it assimilation, I guess I would say accepting the cultural assumptions that are part of, you know, accepting what school offers uh, was a big part of my experience. But, yeah, I can remember times when... Uh, Things were a little awkward, and, uh, you know, in particular, I remember grade 7, I think it was grade 7 social studies textbook that was basically a, a classic anthropological look at Indians across the country. And, um, you know, Thomas King said it best, it, 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 you know, this, this real struggle to be an indigenous person still alive, you know, still living, still part of the world, uh, was... I mean, I wouldn't say in grade seven that I was aware of it in, in that way, but there was a sense that you were you were part of something that was dead and gone, and uh, it's best to let it go, I would say. Um, so you became a teacher, did, uh, did your rounds and everything like that. Um, why did you transition from, from that um, maybe uh, formalized schooling world, teacher world, to the university world? What was some of the things? I'm always interested in people's transition from becoming a teacher to more of an academic role. Yeah. Uh, so I never did teach in a public school. I oh. taught uh, at a place called Kainai High School, which is uh, at Kainai First Nation in southern Alberta, Blackfoot, Blackfoot folks. And uh, that experience changed my life. I was there for 10 years. Um, and... Uh, one thing that's very prominent that I remember right when I was hired is that the the former superintendent, the late Joyce Goodstriker, um, she made it very clear to me that um, they were expecting me to develop curriculum that included Blackfoot themes and issues and, and concerns and history. And so almost immediately I was uh, in this mix of trying to work these things together in, in ways that were meaningful. and. So I had to learn really quickly. And, uh, you know, I was drawn to grad school because in doing that work and in learning, you know, a little bit about Blackfoot culture and traditions and uh, how those, you know, how, how we might honor those in, in schools, uh, I had a whole bunch of questions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was drawn to grad school as a way to try to learn more. And... Uh, I think in general what I could say is that I was just, as I did that, I was just encouraged by more and more people. And I think in my life I just learned that uh, sometimes these things aren't coincidences. You know, they're, they're sort of a, a role, I guess, that, 
that you can have that uh, will work uh, if you kind of pursue it with the spirit and intent that people hope you will. And so I, you know, I was just guided by a lot of elders and a lot of uh, friends and uh, just felt really encouraged. And um, that's what made me kind of keep studying and, and keep working. And, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's led to a lot of good things for me. And I would say uh, it's made me a better person, not, not just, of course, being at the university, but just having the opportunity to follow up on a lot of things that it, I think are really important. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not been that long since we started the practice of acknowledging Indigenous people and their ancestral lands at, at public functions. And and I feel like Alberta, in particular, might have been a little bit <laughs> behind on that one. Mm -hmm. So I remember teaching in British Columbia, and this was a normal practice, but then coming here and, and it wasn't being done. But um, when you some of the people who are doing this are still a bit uncomfortable with it. And some of the people who are hearing it, uh, I know I'm hearing and they're telling me as a person who is doing this, they're a bit uncomfortable with it. What are this, some of the things that you would say to a person who is doing a land acknowledgement to help them feel like they were doing it right? And what I mean by that is we're sometimes so sensitive to do it right. We don't want to disrespect that land acknowledgement do you have any, not tips, but any, any kind of foundational things that say, hey, if you do this and you do it in this spirit, then you're going to be okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've, I've been asked that exact question by several people over the you know, last few years, mostly in academic settings, conferences, those kinds of things. And um, I want to say, I guess, as a bit of a preface that, you know, I – I respect very much, you know, the work that was done with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the final report. And as I understand it, this land acknowledgement has, has kind of flown out of that, uh, that report and those calls as kind of a, a practice. Um, but yeah, it does sound uh, contrived. I think if it's read in that official kind of a way, um, and it, it does miss the mark in terms of trying to connect people and, and uh, I don't know, create a kind of a poignancy, I guess, to, to what we're doing. Um, anything that's forced is like that, I think. Right? And so what I've told people is don't read the statement. Uh, it's there for a reason, I guess. And I know that there are some jurisdictions that require it to be read. But um, I, I'm interested in encouraging people to speak more from their heart about what it means to them, uh, what they're saying, you know, because really what it is, is it's, it's about honoring life. You know, in my view, it's not so much uh, saying these people own this land, but it's, it's understanding that this is also a sacred place where we live. And uh, it has a long history of human existence here people who have lived well for a long time. And that's the spirit and intent of that, you know, because I think part of the motivation in asking people to make a statement like that is to try to, uh, I guess, undermine that assertion that nothing was really going on here until the forts were built, right? So I just encourage people to 
you know, have a little pep talk with themselves and, and just try to, try to connect with the spirit and intent, I think. Mm-hmm. And I guess that that's, that's the idea. The intent of this is to shift people's perspective when it comes to the place where we, where we all live. So I, I, I like that. I think that's really practical advice. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of, so we'll get to that, you know, how we think about the land where we live. Now let's talk about that land. Part of that is how we teach people and how we, how we educate. Um, what would you like to see? And, and, I, and I know this feeds into perhaps some of your work and stuff, um, the research that you've done. What are some of the nice changes or some of the big changes that you'd still like to see in our education system and and how we uh, recognize and shift perspectives around indigenous questions um, in in schools? Mm. Well, it's a, it's a big question, obviously, and, and one that keeps me awake at night, I would say. And it's going to, I think we've begun a process that I hope is going to continue for several decades and and on you know a lot of people will say that uh the processes of tremendous change that uh took place where we are here in treaty 6 territory what they call treaty 6 territory uh it, it's been most dramatic probably in the last 170 years or so which has gotten us to the point where we are and how we understand the relationship and so um, it might take just as long to, to get back to a balance that we would feel good about. But, um, you know, I, I think that um, there's several things that I'm concerned about when I, see, when I look at trends in curriculum and how we think about curriculum, uh, you know, and, and how people are struggling to take up Indigenous themes and issues in different ways. And it has to do with... Um, You know the the I guess concepts of culture is what I would call it, and um, especially in terms of indigenous culture and how um, it can be conceptualized or framed in in an anthropological way. I would say I would say that anthropological col- uh, concepts of culture still dominate how uh, these things are taken up, and so in that kind of way. Uh, indigenous people as human beings also as human beings gets removed and uh, it becomes this aboutness and you might have noticed that in the teacher quality standard it says foundational knowledge about First Nations and Métis and Inuit and to me that that reflects kind of a, a continuing sort of preoccupation with the social spatial kind of organization where uh, indigenous people are outside of the real work. Right. And so this aboutness is, is almost a reaching and, and picking things to bring in um, as a way, I guess, to reconcile. And of course it's safe in that way to do it because it doesn't, challenge the integrity of what's going on already. Schools are quite good at teaching about things. So I would say the, the, the big challenge I see is uh, if schools and curricula can be predicated on, on the idea of learning from Indigenous people. Mm-hmm. 
So that means um, not not just uh, information, but um, ideas of what it means to be a human being, what it means to live here, uh, wisdom about how to live a good life, um, in balance with, you know, what we already know is going on in schools. I'm not looking for a, a wholesale replacement and everything, you know, becomes indigenous focused. I'm talking about places where it makes sense, where it works, and where we can work a balance so that people get, uh, you know, that I think that understanding that we need to move towards about um, that treaty, that treaty vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and another thing I wanted to say in relation to that is that I think that um, one of the major challenges we have in trying to do, you know, the work of the calls to action or, or you know, the, um, the final report of the TRC and, and, and then the teacher quality standard, uh, a major challenge we have is, is to try and unlearn colonialism. And I don't view colonialism as, uh, you know, particular to one group of people um, or uh, in a unidirectional way. I, I would say that colonialism is a, it's an ideology. It's a way of being in the world. And it's a way of approaching knowledge. It's a way of organizing knowledge that has deep implications on what we think schools are for. And so I would say that, that schools, for the most part, reflect colonial logic. And so for me, colonialism is an extended process of denying relationships. And there's many different ways we could think about that. You know which relationships are denied, and and how do that how does that manifest itself? And so the work has to be repairing those relationships and renewing them on different terms. I think, mm-hmm. um, and so a lot of the ways that I understand, for example, what's going on south of the you know in the United States these days, and in other places is is this struggle uh, to maintain that ideology. As a, as a governing principle. So what, what do you think some practical ways are, or some structure, not even some structural changes, let, let's go smaller than that. Mm. Um, let's say a teacher is listening to this interview and they say, yeah, they, they agree with that statement. Let's break down this idea of colonialism. What are some first steps that you would suggest to that person that they might be able to do to change what they do or to to bring them more in line with what you're saying yeah well i think this is where things get really complicated with this work because um i i've I've never felt comfortable with um sort of telling people what to do in Mm -hmm. terms of because a lot of times if people come to my classes or if i'm teaching you know have a session at a conference or something people come with the expectation that they're going to get this list of how you do this, right? And uh, it's very complicated. You know, the the unnamed culture that, that governs most of what we do is really hard to study. And I think a lot of this work with teachers involves a willingness to study ourselves, as a, not in a pathological way. I, I wouldn't want people to, to think that, the, you know, they need to break themselves down. But it's, it's, a, it's a process of paying attention to assumptions you proceed with and uh, where those come from. 
and how they uh, manifest themselves in our daily lives. And so, um, you know, one thing I've thought about is that education is really good at, at sort of studying learning processes. But I'm interested in trying to understand uh, processes of unlearning. So how do you unlearn something that has become so natural? Um, and the other thing I wanted to say about that is that um, for the most part, our schools are set up in a way that promotes the idea that if you want to change the way someone thinks, you just tell them that they should change the way that they think. So here's where, in response to your question, Corey, uh, I'm, you know, I've been guided by you know, Bob Cardinal, who's an elder at Enoch Cree Nation, towards this more holistic understanding of life and living. And, uh, you know, Bob is very good at, at keeping it simple. And um, so just trying to understand um, how we could engage in some of these things, uh, you know, that involves, yes, our mind, you know, think, thinking, intellectualizing, but also our bodies, our spirit, our emotion. And so that that requires different understandings of how learning takes place. And so one of the most obvious things to do is to is to be outside more, to connect with what gives us life. Because a lot of the wisdom that I've been exposed to um, teaches us that a balanced life comes from connecting with what gives life. So to be at the river, not to be afraid to be outside, to uh, connect with life um, and then all the good that can flow from that would be one. To think about, you know, what sustains us. Um, and so, you know, over the years I've been, I've been part of different projects, curriculum development projects, where we try to do that with students. You know, for example, berries are, around here anyway, are a really important part of traditional Indigenous culture. And, you know, we're surrounded by them at this time of year here in mid-August. Um, and so to have the students work with those and, and think about berry knowledge. And, and again, not in isolation from what we might call scientific knowledge of, about you know, plants and how they, how they produce energy. I'm, I'm interested in bringing knowledge systems together and uh, just working things those ways. I, I could go on in a lot of different ways, but, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, as we spoke about earlier, as we begin to experiment a bit more and try to encourage people, you know, there's a lot of fear that people have. They they don't know, they don't understand what indigenous ways are. People are afraid to make a mistake. And I understand that. Um, but, you know, I, I think it in any kind of change, it, it, it takes a few people who, you know, kind of face up to what's holding them back and they just give it a try. And, and that's what I'm looking for is... You know, people doing this work who are starting to do those kinds of things. And there's a few around. I agree. Yeah. And we're starting to hear some of those stories. Yeah. Which I'm which I'm hopeful and, and looking forward to hearing. Yeah. I know that one of the things that you talk about is the pedagogy of the fort. And um, I wonder if you can maybe just break that down and the ideas and I feel like you might have touched on some of them already, um, in our in our conversation already. But um, Maybe explain a little bit of, of that in 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 a 
in a story or in your way, and and what it means for education and how that 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 concept of the pedagogy of the fort influences schools today. Sure. Well, I've called it a relational psychosis that exists in in Canadian society, and I would say here on the prairies, it's it's a kind of a unique psychosis. So when I say psychosis, I mean it's like a, a, a psychological blockage. And it has to do with uh, who belongs here. Mm. Whose land is this? And um, as you know, um, you know, if you kind of go through the process, uh, you know, if Canadians recognize that Indigenous people are the first inhabitants of this land, however you want to frame that, then that kind of calls into question the idea of who a Canadian is. Because if Canadian, you know, can't really claim Canada, then where does he or she belong? And so part of what's happened in Canadian culture are, are different ways to try to deal with this contradiction. And, you know, we're starting to learn the history of this, you know, residential schools would be an example of that, trying to deal with this contradiction of these people who uh, are rooted in the land. So that's the way I understand that. And so, um, you know, I, I, I guess as far as the pedagogy of the fork goes, I had a, a particular, a very personal, very intimate, I guess you could call it a source of inspiration for this insight with the fort. And it, it was our son who is now 20. Um, but when he was maybe three, three and a half, we were living in the town of Fort McLeod in southern Alberta. And there is a fort there, of course. A, a fort. famous fort. Yes, a very famous <laughs> fort, recreated as a museum, like a lot of forts in Western Canada. Well, across Canada, actually. Um, and in the summertime, it's a busy place. Uh, if you drive through Fort McLeod, you might see the Northwest Mounted Police doing the, uh, I can't remember what they call that now, but it's with the horses. and uh, Musical ride. Musical ride, yeah. that's what it is, yeah. And when you live in town, it's only a town of about, you know, 3,000 people. You can hear the music of the musical ride across town. So uh, when we were living there and this musical ride was going on, uh, our son at this, this summer that he was, like I said, three, three and a half, uh, he wanted to go see the musical ride whenever he heard the music. And so as his dad, of course, I'd have to head along with him. <laughs> and uh, I thought that... Uh, he was interested because of the horses, because horses were important to him back then. But that summer, uh, one night I was helping him get ready for bed, and he said to me that he didn't want to be an Indian anymore. And, you know, as, as his dad, of course, I, it took that a little hard. I tried to hide it, but uh, so I sat down on the bed, and uh, I said to him, well, why is that? And he looked me right in the eye, just like a three-and-a-half-year-old would, and he said, Indians always lose. And uh, I was just so uh, provoked by that experience because here was a child who had grown up in a home where the message was quite different. We weren't watching John Wayne movies, you know. <laughs> and yet he, at a very young age, he got this message loud and clear. 
And he was able to articulate it in very unambiguous terms, you know. Um, and so this began an inquiry for me. It became the focus of my dissertation. And so, uh, you know, what I would say is that if you look at the creation story of Canada, and I use that term or that phrase purposefully, creation story, because I think it has that connotation of the sacred, the sacred arising of this nation. Um, there are several mythic symbols that are embedded within that creation story that are critical to the integrity of that story and its maintenance. Um, and one of them are forts. Forts are mythic symbols that are at the heart of the creation story of Canada. And um, my question was, uh, what do forts teach? And uh, especially in their museum version, but also uh, because children are taken there regularly, as we know on field trips, but also in the curriculum and in the history books, how are forts characterized? And so in general, I would say, you know, the simplified story that most of us know well is that uh, this land we now call Canada was mostly uninhabited. You know, uh, the people that lived here were around, but they weren't using it properly or well. And so we have this four-cornered version of civilization that gets plunked down on empty land, perceived to be empty land, four-cornered version of civilization, which is a fort. And what happens over time is that those four walls slowly get expanded over the years and, and you have insiders, people inside the fort who are doing the work of building the nation and you have outsiders and the indigenous people who uh, are kind of in the way. And so as those four walls get expanded, those people outside get pushed, they get pushed out and more and more territory is claimed by those four walls. And so what we have is this, this social-spatial divide uh, that is perceived to be natural and necessary. It's, it's like a civilizational divide. And what it teaches is that people inside do certain things and people outside do other things. And uh, so they live in separate realities. They aren't the same kind of human being. And... Um, in my study, what I tried to show is that this uh, logic, what I call colonial frontier logic, uh, is replicated in curriculum documents and, and textbook resources um, repeatedly throughout, throughout the years, um, you know, that the curriculum has been developed in Canada, right up to the present day, I would say. And, and you know, some people have pointed out that even if you look at um, textbooks that are currently used in Alberta schools that uh, a lot of times you will see information about indigenous people in the margins of, of the textbook. You know, you have the main text yeah. and then you have the margins. So, so I've tried to show that this social spatial organizer um, is constantly replicated in our institutions and our, in our institutional practices. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> we're in Alberta, we're on... Treaty Six land. Do you do you know? Has this happened? Do you, do you think it's the same? Obviously, in other places in Canada, but do you have any information, or have you have you linked up with any people studying the same concept in maybe Australia or the United States? Is do you think that that's the same idea 
also took place in other other countries where you know Europeans came in and kind of displaced the people who lived there would you say yeah well one thing i've done over the years is i you know i've, I've been interested in learning more about australia it's I've never visited uh the country the land but um Australian scholars, indigenous scholars, and and you know other folks working in in those ways, uh, s- their work certainly seems to really resonate with a lot of the struggles that we have here. And uh, yeah, there have been quite a few you know scholars over there who whose work has inspired me in different ways. I I think that colonial logic in general, and I guess I could say in British colonies in particular. Uh, it plays out in very similar ways. The dynamic, the strategy is very similar, uh, and the consequences are very similar. But the particularities of how it, you know, how it manifests, would probably be the differences. But for sure, there's there's a lot of connections in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to know is is there something about education in general that you believe is true? that maybe most people or a large percentage of people would disagree with you on? It's an interesting question. Uh, I guess what I would say to that, Corey, is that, you know, I, um, in working with uh, Elder Bob Cardinal and other elders, there's lots of uh, Blackfoot elders, for example, uh, the late Narcissus Blood and uh, my friend Ramona Bighead, uh, people who have really inspired me and, and guided me, and and I would say in response to your question that uh, you know I've I've come to see the work of education um, as really connected to healing, which is uh, uh, a, an unending project, I would say, and. And healing, not in the, maybe not in the conventional way to understand it, but um, I guess just in, in thinking about our lives as human beings and, and the struggles and the conflicts we have and how we can help people understand that and, and get their balance back. I mean, that's, that's the way I've, I've come to learn about it. And so a lot of my work in education is is really inspired by that and and part of the wisdom that goes with that is that if you attend to that if you attend to healing and of course a lot of people would say i don't need to be healed i'm good but thinking about healing in that sort of holistic way if you attend to that the wisdom says that there's lots of good things that will come from that it will flow from that and so you know i think of the root word of education you know Ducer from the Latin, which has to do with educe, and that that means to bring forth, to bring forth. And so, I, you know, I connect to that because I think that's also a form of wisdom from another part of the world about the work of education as as guiding people in that way. And so, um, you know, I guess I I guess I get worried when I'm in contexts when where education seems to be reduced to the downloading of information onto other people. I mean, I know part of that has to happen, but I'm much more interested in that that process of healing as I've come to learn about it and and uh, how to connect people um, 
to that way of understanding life and living. That's that's what I'm most interested in these days. Yeah. You've brought up a lot of elders that you have learned from, and it sounds like the, these people are master teachers. Mm. When you're thinking of that term of master teacher or of an elder who is who is really skilled at at getting people to understand or in different ways of coming to know what comes to mind what qualities do they have and you've already mentioned a bunch of people which i think is really powerful too mm-hmm. but what was it about them and that experience what they did that made them such an influence on your learning I think for the most part, uh, we do teach the way we've been taught. Uh, we might not even be aware of it, but we we replicate what you know what we're exposed to, and um, that's why I would say you know apart from many other things, the the time I've spent with elders and community leaders has been so helpful for me because uh, when I was young, I wasn't taught that way. I didn't learn about those things, just the way I was raised. Um, a master teacher or an elder, um, the way I think about that is, uh, with elders it has to do with uh, what, I, what some people call ancestral knowledge. So, and I think this is a really important point that maybe some, some folks haven't got a chance to learn about, but um, sometimes people uh, misunderstand the role of elders, I would say, at least around here, you know, in, in, in uh, the people that I know, the communities that I know in this area. Um, sometimes people think that elders are put on a pedestal or they're, they're considered flawless, and uh, that's not the way I was mentored. Uh, the reason that elders are honored is that they have had ancestral knowledge transferred to them, and they care for it. They've earned the right through their life to uh, care for that knowledge and transfer it to others, to share it with others. And so, for example, the way I understand it, when you present an elder with tobacco, it's not you're not paying the elder. What you're doing is you're honoring that ancestral knowledge that he or she holds and you're asking for he or she to share it with you. And so the qualities that come up for me in that context are, are first of all, humility. And uh, humility in a very large sense, because uh, I think that um, we, can, we can be humble in our human-to-human interactions, but there's also uh, you know, a very important dynamic of being humble with our more than human interactions as well. And I think this is where a lot of the insight with elders that I know comes from, where they, they understand, for example, uh, our, our, our need to honor water and air and trees and so on, right? And this kind of putting yourself in the flow of that kind of ethical relationality, I would call it, uh, humbles a person. And that's, I would say one of the real powerful outcomes of a lot of our ceremonies is this, is this sense of humility and kindness and compassion that this life is difficult, right? And, and so to approach life and living in that way in a kind of a, a kindness and a compassion 
and with humility. And I'll just I'll just share a quick story uh, that happened to me about 25 years ago that um, I continue to study and try to think about um, and what it's taught me. It was, this was uh, this happened when I was a teacher at Kainai High School, and uh, I was working with my friend Ramona Bighead. Uh, she was teaching English, I was teaching social studies, and we had uh, what we called the elder mentor program. So we had elders come to the school, and we were just experimenting with different different ways that we might uh, engage the students. And uh, one of the projects that we decided on with the guidance of the elders was a, a sweat lodge ceremony. And... Uh, when the day for the ceremony took place, it was only going to be the boys that, uh, the young men that were in the class that were, you know, going to be part of it. It was men, were, young men were going to do another thing and the young women in the class were going to do something else. But it just so happened that none of the young men in the class showed up on that day for a lot of different reasons. So it was just me and these three beautiful Blackfoot elders who had agreed to teach that day to guide us and so being kind of naive and uh, unfamiliar with these contexts and settings I assumed because the students hadn't come that you know the sweat lodge ceremony wouldn't take place but you know I learned quickly that you know no they had made prior arrangements <laughs> and so we had to go ahead we had to go ahead with the ceremony regardless of who was there so what happened on this afternoon uh, was that the three elders turned their attention to me. And so I was the one who collected the rocks. I was the one who built the fire. I was the one who built the lodge. I was the one who dug the hole. I was the one who picked the sage. I was the one who got everything ready, and they took turns uh, teaching me things about all this. And one thing I remember that was so powerful is that while I was doing things, uh, they were uh, whispering in my ear uh, in a very gentle way. Uh, they were whispering in my ear stories that connected with what I was doing. And so on that day, I was brought into a very different way of understanding teaching and learning, uh, a very different way of understanding knowledge and its transfer and uh it changed my life. That experience changed my life. And, and so because of that kindness and that, that uh, uh, compassion they had for me to try and help me, uh, I used that as inspiration for what I hear, do here at the university, you know, in my own way, because I'm not an elder and I, I don't want to try to act like them. But to be kind and compassionate in my own way is, and humble is mm -hmm. what I try to do. And, and do you think that that's the essence of teaching? If we were to to break teaching down to its to its most essential elements, if if teaching was easy, <laughs> is that it? I, you're not the first person to laugh. And <laughs> teaching and easy don't usually go together. But I think a lot of times we get trapped into all of the superfluous things that we think are teaching, but but aren't. Is it humility? Is it connection? It sounds like you're saying relationships. It sounds it's connection to not only different people but to where we live I think that's a good way to say it Corey yeah I would agree relationships and uh, honoring them mm -hmm. as best we can mm -hmm. 
Um, I've only got a few questions left, and these ones are a bit fast. Um, okay. So maybe just the first thing that comes to mind. Do you have a favorite um, website or application that you often push people to? Hmm. Well, one I would recommend. It's 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 not really a website. It's more like a resource. It's mm -hmm. uh it's a film actually that uh, is available online if you if you just do a search for it. It's called Relearning the Land, and uh, it's a series of films actually that were made by some independent filmmakers who were interested in uh, I guess alternative educational contexts. And uh, the film Relearning the Land focuses on a uh, a program called Kainai Studies that existed at a place called Red Crow College, which is on the Kainai Reserve. Mm -hmm. And um, it's the story of, of a course that has to do with uh, studying the cycles of, of the land in southern Alberta and Blackfoot Territory, uh, plants, animals, for a whole trip around the sun and, and different ways that you can connect people with that. That involves language and ceremony. And uh, it's just a, a beautiful film with all kinds of uh, really important insight in there from uh, the two sort of main folks that are in there, are the late Narcissus Blood, who was an elder, the Kainai, and uh, Ryan Heavyhead, who was, uh, I guess, the main instructor for that course. So I would... Highly recommend That's people great. watch that film. Do you have a book book um, that you often quote or refer to that you perhaps gift or or tell people to go check out? Yeah, well, as I as I think I said a little earlier, I'm most interested in knowledge systems, mm -hmm. uh, the dynamics of them, how we can understand them. And there's an Australian uh, author; his name's David Turnbull. And he has a book called Masons, Tricksters, and Cartographers. And uh, I find the book so interesting because his main project is to find a way to, uh, I guess, work with knowledge systems, differing knowledge systems, so they can communicate with each other in equitable ways. So he's really concerned with, for example, with the ways in which scientific Techno-scientific knowledge has been universalized, and the ways in which its its su supposed superior uh, character sort of trumps any interaction that another another knowledge system might have with it. And so, his main point in the book, I would say, is that all forms of knowledge arise uh, in very local contexts. And so if you can trace them back to the lo local context from which they arise, uh, any knowledge system, whether it be indigenous or what we call techno-scientific, it's at this point that they can speak to each other in an equitable way. And so I find that book very inspiring. He has all kinds of case studies in there where he tries to experiment with some of his ideas. And I use it as a guide for how to develop curriculum because I, I try to get people to break down two very local understandings and then you know, proceed with kind of the interactions in, in those ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there something that you do every day or most days that keeps you well and healthy? Well, we're here in Edmonton and I have a very intimate relationship with this beautiful river valley here. Mm -hmm. We have this spectacular river in Cree. We say Gi Saskatchewan 8CP. In English, it's known as the North Saskatchewan River. 
And uh, it's beautiful. So thankful that uh, people in the past decided to uh, not to, not allow it to, to be developed. And so I'm down there in the valley beside the river on my own. Seems like my own private little path that I hardly see any people on with my dog uh, pretty much every day, uh, all throughout the year. And uh, a lot of times I go down there uh, just to study things. Like I might study beaver or the progression of different plants that I see. And uh, it gives me strength. It gives me inspiration. And uh, I think keeps me happy too. Yeah. That's great. Uh -huh. Is there an organization or a person that's really inspiring you right now? Uh, well, I think I'll uh, have to mention Elder Bob Cardinal again. Uh, Bob is somebody that I've had the chance to spend a lot of time with over the last decade or so, uh, as much as I can. And uh, I mean, his life story is very interesting and very inspirational. But uh, I just, uh, in, in Cree culture, there's a, a role, uh, it's called oscapio, and it means, uh, basically, it means you're a helper. So if if an elder like Bob is is trying to do something or gets asked to do something, sometimes they'll ask an oscapio to come along to do what needs to be done uh, before the ceremony takes place, for example, or whatever. And uh, when I do, when I, you know, sort of amass to help Bob in those ways and I, I get to watch um, how he works with people and uh, how he tries to guide people, um, it, it's, it just uh, inspires me in so many ways. And, uh, um, you know, one of the things I guess that uh, has been most important for me is that uh, I come from a band that was displaced. I come from the Papa Sies, uh who used to have a reserve here in the, in the city uh, up until 1895 when the land was expropriated. And so, you know, I come from a family that uh, has, you know, deep roots in this territory but never felt like we belonged because of that displacement and so bob has has given me a chance to feel like i belong again like by by helping me connect to that ancestral wisdom mm -hmm. and uh it's just made me a better person and uh i think a better professor here as well um it's just really enriched my life and the life of my family so he's the one that you know, my mind goes to when you ask me that question. Yeah. Let's talk about the future. What are what are some of your future plans? What's next for you? What are some of the questions that you're looking to answer or projects that you're looking to 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 work on? Yeah. Well thanks for that question because uh you know, I, I think as um as professors at a university I, I very much see uh, our role as as being um, it's a very public role. I think that I serve the public and and that's my job. I don't think that I necessarily own uh, you know a, a lot of these ideas. I think they uh, they're generated in many different ways. But I 
I think the issue that's most critical for us right now is to reimagine what it means to live here. And uh, what I'm focused on now is uh, the idea, which I think many people miss, that curriculum, whatever form it takes, whatever grade level, whatever subject area, is basically an expression of a kind of human being that we have in mind. And for the most part, that citizenship idea that's at the heart of curriculum is based in a long history of nation and nationality. And, um, you know, my view is, is that uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But I think that, uh, you know, in a lot of my studies, I think actually that, that Canadian nation and nationality is actually at odds with uh, reconciliation. And so we need a new vision for the kind of human being that we have in mind. And so the question that I've asked a lot is, uh, if we're going to look around for sources of inspiration for how we might live together differently, where might we look? And of course, as, as we're starting to realize, Indigenous people have a really long, detailed understanding of what it means to live here. And so I'm, I'm interested in a project where we can honor that history of Canadian nation and nationality and citizenship, but balance it with um, Indigenous notions of what it means to be a human being. And, and because of that treaty relationship, um, I think that uh, people who live, who have come to live here, whose families have come to live here over generations, also need to learn about that, that, that sort of what some people call a land-based understanding of what it means to live here. Because uh, I think the history of Canadian nation and nationality is a long history of looking elsewhere for sources of inspiration. So what I'm trying to do is to get people to, to look at the places where they live. You know, and one thing maybe I'll just add with this is that um, as we kind of continue to try to make sense of this difficult past and what it means for us today, um, one of the things that's happening that is that Indigenous languages are, are starting to come back in different ways, maybe not as quickly as we'd like, but there's an awareness of them. And uh, one thing to think about is that uh, Indigenous people, of course, um, have names for themselves that are actually very descriptive of um, how they think of themselves in relation to the place where they live. So, you know, for example, Cree people, we don't call themselves Cree. That's a, that's a name that I come, I think comes from French missionaries, you know. It's, it's commonplace, but uh, in the Cree language, we call ourselves Nihewak. And so, you know, for teachers and in terms of curriculum, I think it's really important for people who live in a, a territory like Treaty 6 where there's lots of Nihewak to know what that means and to know what it means in relation to where they live because it's really, it's a description of the wisdom, really old wisdom about this place and people living here. And uh, 
so I'm I'm tinkering with curriculum conceptual conceptualizations of curriculum that trying to work some of this out. Yeah. I'm excited to hear about it. I'm excited to to learn and be part of that as well. Mm. Um, if people want to connect with you, how what's the best way to do that? Best way is through email. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the the platform I'm most active on. I haven't mm-hmm. haven't I don't have a Twitter account or anything like that. So yeah, just my my U Alberta email would be yeah. the easiest way to do that. I want to thank you so much for speaking with uh, with me and for us today. And um, yeah, I look forward to to hearing about some of those new projects in the future. Thank you, Corey. That's it for my conversation with Dr. Dwayne Donald. In closing, I'd like to recognize that this interview took place on Treaty 6 territory. If you like what you're hearing, please connect with Intersection Education on our website, intersectioneducation.com, or on Twitter at IntersectionEd. We'll be back soon with our next episode.